Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the uh, podcast that usually goes through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but is on a little hiatus right now because one of our usual co-hosts, Jeff Hartline, better known as Brendan Beefish, is off taking care of his job. So for a few weeks, we're going to be doing some guest episodes on the show with just me, your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin, and a couple of rotating guest hosts. And I'm very pleased to introduce our guest host for this episode. Say hi to Mary. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hello, uh, so happy to be here. So we wanted to, to talk today about uh, two, I, I know, great interests of yours, A Song of Ice and Fire and The Law. So let's let's do your uh, your origin story with, with both of those, starting with the, the real world one. What's your, what's your superhero origin story in the world of law? I, so I have a terrible superhero <laughs> origin story because I never wanted to be a lawyer um, at any point in my life, I guess, right up until I applied to law school. Um, I uh, did debate in high school and then in college. And when I say debate, I mean, I actually did public speaking events, which I just call debate. But like I did like extemp speaking and like persuasive speaking and impromptu speaking all this stuff and um i guess a lot of people that do that kind of thing end up being lawyers huh uh and i had thought about wanting to be a um you know i thought about going into academia a bunch of other things and i just ended up deciding to go to law school in part because while I was in college, I was involved with a lot of um, uh, anti-death penalty activism, and I just became sort of exposed to the ways that lawyers can be instruments to work for uh, social justice, and I thought that that would be a good you know, sort of thing for me to do with my life. Now, unfortunately, sort of the the reality is that that's not what I did once I became a lawyer but that's sort of the the reason that I went to to law school at at least uh, sort of these idealistic kinds of reasons um as far as a song of ice and fire you know the the story that I that I tell folks is um in my I had my first kid in uh, 2017 and I live in Houston and we were, we had our house flooded by hurricane Harvey. And, um, the, the thing that got me through that was listening to podcasts. Uh, and it ended up being, uh, I listened to radio Westeros and history of Westeros. And that is like what got me through, um, what got me through that time in my life. And so that's sort of was my entry into the song of ice and fire fandom. That's wonderful. Obviously, uh, Radio Westeros and History of Westeros, I think, were, were the OG podcast for a lot of people, including me, including uh, Chloe over at Girls Gone Canon, including Jeff as well. And um, yeah, it's uh, helping folks through, you know, difficult times and also times when you just have to hunker down and can't can't really do anything about a about an unpleasant situation. This is one of the good things that, that you know, podcasts and other media are good for. And it's great to be able to provide that role, I think, is, is something I've heard from uh, from from Lady Gwen 
and uh, from Aziz and Ashaya when we were first starting our, our podcast stuff. But yeah, it's interesting. You, you, yeah, you brought up the death penalty. I was involved in a little bit of activism and that in college as well. And of course, there's recently in the news, you know, uh, Dustin Higgs, we've got the, the 13th execution under Trump. So that is kind of um, a, a perpetually kind of barbaric reminder of, the, of that part of our politics. And obviously the 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 concept of justice and whether we can expect it from our political institutions or whether we're kind of fools for doing so is kind of is something that comes up in A Song of Ice and Fire a lot. And I think, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire touches on a lot of areas of law and politics that kind of demands commentary from the audience, even if the audience isn't necessarily familiar with it. And I certainly kind of feel that way about, about legal matters, because while I, I took vaguely law adjacent classes when I was in college, uh, I never pursued it beyond that. So uh, what what led you to kind of uh, pursue the kind of legal angle in A Song of Ice and Fire? And what led you to, uh, to foray into podcasting yourself? Well, so uh, my my co-host for the, the Learned Hands podcast, which we, I'm sure, will talk about a, l- a little bit more here in a second, um, is uh, my wonderful friend, Clint. And, you know, Clint had started this blog, Laws of Ice and Fire. And um, I I remember being so excited when he came out with this, when he started this blog doing like legal issues in the Song of Ice and Fire. I like remember DMing him and we had this like conversation about oh look here's some weird arcane areas of law that we we both know about and i think we talked about class certification which is i i just can't if you're not it's the most it's not boring but it's just like really (laughs) arcane and pedantic um and and so then um you know the pandemic happened and uh we just decided to start this podcast for pretty much exactly the reasons that we've been talking about is we both needed something to do to get us through the long, the long night. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think I definitely recognized the role that this community and podcasting has had um, in getting me through difficult times. Um, And so that is, I think, what motivated both of us to to start the podcast, um, because we, you know, we had this mutual interest. We, um, you know, we met at the uh, Con of Thrones um, back in Nashville, the last <laughs> Con of Thrones uh, that happened, um, and just thought, hey, this would be a, a fun a fun thing to do and help get us through uh quarantine and of course here we are almost a year later so those debate skills still paying off absolutely uh yeah clint obviously we had on for uh clash of kings Tyrion 2 which was great that was one of my favorite guest appearances we had on and he and you both are just you're just uh you're very uh, astute constructors of arguments, which I really appreciate, and I think you you both lay out your cases really well, and I think you can you can you can tell your background coming through. Um, what is uh, do you think do you think Clint and and you are are well matched in in that regard? Are there are there lawyer attitudes that Clint has that you find exasperating, or vice versa? Like, do you think you have similar perspectives on the law that way, or do you fit stereotypes? Uh, so I think um. I will say I have met many lawyers who exasperate me. So 
it takes a lot for me to be sure. annoyed, okay? I would but bet. I, I, I would bet. I don't necessarily, uh, I, I don't find Clint to be exasperating, but I, I'm just putting out there that Nor the I. is low. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, I think we're well matched because I am a much more, I'm a lot more cynical about every power structure that exists in the world than he is. Sure. Um, and he is more, although obviously, you know, I think a lot of people's faith in legal and democratic institutions has been shook in the past, you know, few months, four years, whatever, whatever time period sure. you say. But I mean, Clint has a background sort of in teaching people constitutional law and uh, has a lot of, you know, I think healthy respect for the American constitution and system of governance. Um, and that's, it's, it's awesome because I think we come at things in a way where he's able to present this very well grounded, educated perspective of, you know, here's the way that, um, American political philosophy and the founders of the constitution would have looked at something and I'll be like, well, here's what like Derrida would have said about this, you know? <laughs> uh, so it's, sure. it, it's a good, it's a good balance that way. And that I think he is very, very well grounded in political, you know, philosophy and theory. Whereas I come from like a more kind of abstract background when I think about, legal questions if that makes sense totally no i think that's the that's a perfect mixture i'm always interested in people in in collaborating what kind of energies people draw out of each other in that mix of you know you don't want to be identical but you don't want to have completely antithetical approaches either and i think finding that balance is, is always really interesting so yeah so learning hands obviously you guys have done some great episodes what would you say is is your favorite or a representative one with like the the rob's will one or the the danny one which 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 uh which did you have the most fun with i you know i was just thinking about this <laughs> that i would have to answer this question um i <laughs> so our first episode which is about the kind of constitutional um about whether or not the night's watch oath can be viewed as a constitution i think is a great entry to our podcast and um i I don't know if it's my favorite episode we've done because I do think that we've sort of gotten better uh, as we've gone along. But I, I, really, I hear that. Yeah, I feel the same <laughs> way about us for sure, for sure. Yeah, but I, I really enjoyed that. the The other, the other episode that we've done recently that I really enjoyed, uh, we did an episode on, uh, the the sworn on um this worn sword and the uh, weber will and water rights and i i just mm, thought uh -huh. it was going to be the most boring episode ever i was like clint why do you want to do this as a topic <laughs> and then we got into it and i was like oh this is this is wonderful what a what a great topic because i think we discovered the sworn sword it's actually set out almost like a medieval legal drama um mm -hmm. it, it it has the like all the makings of a sort of novella that is about resolving a legal issue. And so I, I was just delighted with, with that episode. Um, we did an episode on uh, sort of on 
the first law of Bravos. That's the the most recent episode that we've released. And I love that one because Bravos is one of my favorite things in A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and we also got to talk about, and and this is just, it hit, hits home for me a lot right now, but we talked a lot about um, the potential in the Bravosi constitution versus um, the potential of the reconstruction amendments in the United States, sort of, we kind of asked this question of what would it look like if you had a constitution that was truly anti-slavery, that was really about, um, that was really about equality. Uh, and so, uh, I, I enjoyed that episode immensely just because I think both of us were able to talk about uh, areas of American constitutional law uh, and, and sort of bring those to bear on some of the things that, that Martin does uh, in A Song of Ice and Fire that I think are the best parts of speculative fiction. So mm. this is a, a big soapbox that I have is that speculative fiction is a place for us to exercise our moral imagination we get to think not just about how things are, but the way that things could be and how we can do them differently and what that might look like. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that's interesting about the way George R. R. Martin wrote Bravos is, hey, you you have a this city-state that's created by uh, escaped slaves from a bunch of different... Um, you know, a bunch of different religious backgrounds, a bun bunch of different cultural backgrounds. What kind of society do they create? Um, and look, Bravos is not perfect. It might be like run by a sacred death cult. Uh, but there's <laughs> a, a lot of sort of admirable things in the, the political culture of Bravos. Um, and and I think it highlights that that potential, that kind of moral imagination potential of of speculative fiction that that sometimes gets gets lost among like attempts to be gritty and realistic that's really well said i love that idea that it's uh spe specifically a speculative arena where you can test your moral imagination and that bravos fits into that tradition because bravos is in so many ways set off from the rest of the story i mean literally geographically but also just it doesn't feel or look like anything else in the world of, of ice and fire and in our own real world antecedents for it obviously it's always a mishmash but it does feel much more you know indebted to the renaissance to venice and to amsterdam a, a large degree and that is a, a different set of reference points than the rest of it and in, in, in some way in, I've, I've always kind of felt and you were bringing it back when you were describing how you felt about it that it feels like bravos is kind of what the future might be and what the what the what these societies might develop towards, assuming they're not all destroyed by various supernatural powers, and that's that's interesting to consider, especially since, as you say, it was uh, built by escaped slaves and built by a lot of uh, refugees and kind of you know bits and pieces of a lot of cultures, and yeah, the sense of a kind of a diaspora growing in the wake of a lot of the disasters that have begun and will continue to go on throughout the story, and you know, it's not unique to Bravos. We see versions of that with like the orphans of the Green Blood. And then we go back to the Roin in A Dance with Dragons and see, okay, this is like the remains of the, the mother culture from what, which those people come from. And we're going to see versions of that with other stories. And George has said, of course, that he has lots, you know, he'd love to write more about Bravos. Um, and, you know, you could imagine a whole kind of novel set in that regard. But yeah, I'd love, I, I, I imagine that 
Uh, can you imagine like a kind of more like legally renaissance oriented fiction in that world? Is that something you'd be interested in reading? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, and and I think um, I think that the the idea of being a, of a story centered around like oh this is a bravosi contract lawyer who's brokering mm-hmm. like uh all these deals and also has to sort of mind the faceless men in the background like that would be a great story i would i would love it yeah that's because we do get kind of access to that a little bit but it, yeah it is from the perspective of the death cult and it does build on Arya's previous chapters in that way where she's dealing with political struggles but also figures like jock and and Beric and Thoros, who are, are very magical in origin. So, yeah, that, that is that balance there. So um, what other, when you think about other great, because, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, the debate as a kind of a, a source for, for going into law school and kind of the, the, the drama of those scenes. So what, what are other great, like, when you think of other great legal scenes in fiction, whether, whether they capture uh, it realistically or not, like, what, what comes to mind? Well, so my answer is... Uh... Always that I love Legally Blonde, um, mm-hmm. and part of it's because it's it it's this movie that has this it's very hope punk, right? Uh, I and uh, the in terms of a scene, you know, the, there's the and we we just we so for Learn Hands we just recorded a trial episode and we talked about what our what is our favorite like fake trial scene. And for me, it's in Legally Blonde when, you know, Elle Woods is cross-examining Chutney and she reveals, no, you couldn't have been in the shower because you just got a perm and it would deactivate the ammonium (laughs) thyglocalate. Um, It's just, that's such a fun, it's such a fun scene. Uh, It capitalizes on part of Elle's knowledge that everyone underestimates her for, uh, and and I love it uh, in terms of just being completely fun. Uh, other legal drama moments I love, probably my favorite lawyer movie other than Legally Blonde is Aaron Brockovich. Um, okay. The reason I love Aaron Brockovich is he's it's focused on the kind of case investigation hustle of lawyering as opposed to the courtroom Hmm. lawyering skills. And I think a problem in the legal profession and the way that the legal profession is portrayed on like television and movies is that we overemphasize courtroom skills and um, underemphasize investigative skills, the, the work that goes on behind the scenes. Or in that case, uh, it's, client contact right Erin Brockovich is this paralegal and she is able to help win this case because of the way that she relates to her clients um and and obviously it's it's based on a true story and I think that uh that is something that uh real world lawyers would do good to remember that even Hmm. if your client is not some fancy you know you know fancy corporate suit right even if your client is just a person who suffered an injury as a result of a corporation right they deserve respect and to be communicated with well and you have to earn their trust uh and that's that's something that i really like about that movie uh other legal 
scenes, everybody should watch Better Call Saul. I don't want to talk about it because it's ongoing right now and I don't want to spoil True. it. True. But it is the most realistic portrayal of lawyers as people uh, that I have seen. <laughs> like, there's a character in it, Howard Hamlin, and he is just a condescending Ken doll. And it is like so many people. Every scene he's in is like so many people I have worked with. Um, and Kim Wexler, uh, another mm-hmm. one of the, it's just, she's great. She's complex, complex character, um, driven someone who I relate to a lot because just again, not to spoil it, but she ends up being successful and then not being happy with her success because the work she does is not rewarding. And that is a very, <laughs> It's like a very good lawyer storyline right there. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's perfect. I like that. Cause yeah, when you were saying about like how uh, a lot of lawyer, lawyer scenes in media restrict things to the courtroom and, and not so much, you know, client contact or investigative work. And I was thinking, well, like, you know, I usually associate those scenes with PIs. Like that's when that's, that's where that scene happens. You go to the, the barely legal guy and that's more kind of the, the, the trope and stereotype there. And I wonder why that is. Maybe just they, they a lot of storytellers just like you know separating out their characters into strict little regiments but i do like it when you're shown like with a lawyer or a, or a doctor that part of your job in those professions is understanding kind of having a protein nature to your profession and taking on a lot of different a lot of different roles and a lot of different people and that the kind of the the ones who restrict themselves probably probably are the ones who are not that great at it and that's that's interesting to consider well i think um, it's it's an yeah. interesting sort of criticism that we can also level on A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, sure. Because the, the point of views that we get, like in most fantasy, right, they're not, they are typically the people who matter most doing the big deal things. They're the people that are playing the Game of Thrones. So with the exception of a character like Arya, who's kind of on the ground, right, we don't see... Uh, and I don't, you know, the small folk, right? And so my, the way that I would translate that into how we portray lawyers in fiction is, you know, we see the lawyer in the courtroom because that's what we think is good drama. We think those big moments are what matters. But, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a multi-million dollar verdict. It doesn't matter if that is the, sometimes the work that makes the climax possible, right? That, that, that big reveal of evidence or whatever it's it's something small that happened between quote unquote minor characters or it's the the work that the paralegal did that it truly makes the case viable and we just don't do a good job of glamorizing that kind of work um we you know we want to see what the partner's doing rather than what the you know sort of the associate who's doing these like long grueling hours is doing and i think that kind of translates globally into the way that we tell stories in science people tell stories in science fiction and fantasy um you know as well as in lawyer storytelling yeah that's a great point how would you rank uh, game of thrones at the, the show itself in terms of uh courts court scenes uh, i mean i think so the the great court scenes in Game of Thrones, right, are Tyrion's both of Tyrion's trials, um, sure, and those are wonderful because they're 
they're kind of ripped from they're ripped right from the books um mm-hmm. and then i guess in season eight i thought a lot of people thought there was going to be this trial of jamie lannister in game of right. season eight but we didn't get it. I was so blue balled, right? Like it was just <laughs> like I was so expecting there to be some kind of courtroom type drama with that, and there wasn't. So that was that was a letdown. Um, but but you know, I mean, I think as far as it goes, the the scenes in Game of Thrones are are quite good. I mean. Peter Dinklage is so good as Tyrion um, in Tyrion's King's Landing trial. It, you you couldn't ask for uh, a better kind of piece of testimony. Also, like Charles Dance, I would cast him to be a judge in like any movie he plays. Oh, for sure, that kind of stoic role so well. Do you think do you imagine can you imagine like a, a trial of Jamie Lannister uh emerging in some form in the books like maybe it would be maybe the brotherhood I mean they've been known to give trials of you know uh, varying sincerity I guess is how I would put it um God, and he's being dragged I hope so <laughs> How would you yeah so how would you uh, if you're like uh imagine yourself as as Jamie's uh, defense lawyer in the brotherhood how would you uh how how would you handle him against against their charges? I guess their charges would mostly be that he's just generally awful. Oh boy. Um. Well, <laughs> I think um. If I were Jamie's lawyer, I would have just Brienne speak in his defense. The most sure. That seems like your best witness. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The most compelling thing to save Jamie's soul is whatever Brienne has to say. I I, I don't. Good call. <laughs> Smart strategy. I like that. But yeah, I'm trying to think what uh, yeah other uh, trial stuff we might see if when we get the Winds of Winter. I don't know if if uh, Danny's going to be in a necessarily full on judging mood. She might skip right to the uh, skip right to the judge jury and executioner part. Yeah, but well, um, you know we have I guess in season eight as well you have uh, Danny's burning of Varys. Uh, I sure. don't know whether Varys will see like. S- justice uh at the hand of you know either i guess danny or someone you know some some future regent um but i would i would love to see i would love to see that in the books i would love to see var is forced to reckon for and defend his crimes because we get the beautiful epilogue with far is where he sort of explains you know during Kevin's murder, his his grand scheme. And I would love to see a lawyer or other advocate uh, test the test for his logic. I think that would be great. I, I don't know that we'll get something like that, but that is um, that's something I'd be interested in seeing. Yeah, Varus does enjoy his monologues when he gets the chance with Kevon and Dance and Ned and Game. So he's just he's just itching to have that spotlight on him on the stand. I could see that for sure. That would be great. Well, and that's right. Varus's testimony against Tyrion is a big is part of uh, you know sure. Cersei's case against him as well. And so you know to see <laughs> the knife turned the other way uh, on on Varus, I think would be gratifying. Mm, I can picture that. 
So to shift, sadly, away from fiction uh, towards reality for a little bit, um, you know, it's uh, what are your initial thoughts of of a spectacle like Rudy Giuliani talking about a trial by combat? Like, what are your (laughs) what are what are your what are your first instinctive thoughts when something like that happens? Um, my first instinctive thought: Why is this band still practicing law? Um, you know, I I think sounds about right. Yeah, that's that that's definitely my first thought. <laughs> uh, Rudy Giuliani. Um, well, what is the Game of Thrones equivalent of Rudy Giuliani? I think we had uh, Clinton and I and a few other people were going back and forth on Twitter about is Rudy Rudy Giuliani like Grandmaster Picel? Uh, is you know is he just sort of like. He's he's just he's infuriating in the same ways. I could see that. Yeah, um, but that is you know that's Rudy is such a he's just so incompetent. There's just not there's not much to there's not much that I have to 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 add about that particular statement. Yeah, it's 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 shocking. Not because like you know I think he. He kind of uh, he 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 took advantage of the media, I guess, in a way that is is simpatico with the way Trump did. And is there? I guess really that's 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 what really, really what defines them. Do do you think there's anything specific in terms of a, a negative side of the legal profession that defines Rudy Giuliani's rise and fall, or do you do you think he just kind of latched onto that like he's latched onto any other profession and doesn't really? say much beyond him or did do, 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 do you think he's representative or do you think he's just kind of singular um i think that's i think that's a good question um i would say i think of rudy giuliani as a politician first yeah I that's think of that's kind rudy of what i was Gi- getting at yeah i mean he is the man who you know became a meme for just adding 9-11 to everything uh because that was to his political advantage to to leverage that um so so that's the that's my first impulse the second thing i have to say in defense of the legal profession um and you know if clint is listening he's like oof mary's rallying to the defense of the the legal profession this this must be a big one um but Rudy Giuliani was, he spearheaded Trump's efforts to overturn the results of a valid election. Um, and the legal profession, by and large, has condemned those efforts as anti-democratic um, and illegal. Uh, there's efforts to disbar both Rudy Giuliani and Lynn Wood, another one of Trump's lawyers. Um, and I think that it's for all the failings of attorneys, my experience has been that even more moderate lawyers, even corporate, you know, the even kind of traditional corporate interested like right affiliated lawyers have condemned the efforts that Rudy Giuliani spearheaded to overturn the election. So in in that sense, I do think he's kind of a pariah because his, 
arguments were bad. And <laughs> vast swaths of the legal community not only made fun of the arguments for being bad, but also thought that he was violating ethical duties by by sponsoring those arguments. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just I just got an alert that he's he's arguing that Trump's claims of widespread voter fraud did not constitute incitement to violence because the claims are true, which I don't know much, but that doesn't sound like a sound argument to me. It's, it's not just they're not true. Like every court that considered them threw them out. And again, that that's the other thing, me rallying to the defense of the legal profession. Even federal sure. court judges that were appointed by Donald Trump, they they looked at the allegations of voter fraud that were brought before them and they threw them out because there was no evidence. And say what you will, making fun of lawyers and the legal system, <laughs> but but we do have systems in place and lawyers are supposed to be trained to determine when there is credible evidence of something and you know again to the defense of the legal profession soundly those were all the allegations of voter fraud affecting the outcome of the election were were thrown out really well said so yeah i mean yeah because we've been talking obviously to people about you know oh uh you know belief in norms or institutions that were eroded or weren't there. What is something from a legal perspective, what is something that you have not changed your mind about? What is something that has held true for you, do you think, over the over the past few weeks? Um I If anything. <laughs> I mean it it's hard for me. I I come from a pretty again a pretty cynical place about. I don't. I'm not someone who waxes pro- poetic about sure. American well, democracy, I mean, right? Well, then that <laughs> can have stayed the same. Sure. So yeah. that is that a that a that 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 cynicism. Does that feel um? I think. Does, I mean, thing- does it feel? Does it not feel like a surprise because of that, or does that feel affirmed, or does it still feel like a change from what you would have predicted? I think that it's it's always different. It's always different to sort of cynically predict something would happen than to watch it happen. And sure. and I, you know, I am one of those people who, when Trump was elected, thought to to myself, he's never going to peacefully let go of power. Um, and I thought that. There's a chance that his better angels will win out. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I was afraid of it, but I didn't sort of expect it to happen. Um, I, you know, the extent to which people like uh, Mitch McConnell have sort of played along with him, the extent to which there's sort of this... I think Tea Party inspired wing of the Republican Party that has sort of continued to just like my senator Ted Cruz because I'm from Texas. Ted Cruz is my senator. Um, Ted Cruz did exactly what I expected Ted Cruz to do. So, so <laughs> sure. we can say that sure. has made my lack of faith in Ted Cruz has remained the same. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's hard to say. I will. I, I do think that I. I still think that I have the same fundamental impression of 
American democracy, which is you can't have a democracy if people don't participate in good faith. And my biggest fear for the future of this country is that people don't participate in democracy in good faith. Um, that there are too many bad actors. And I, I don't want to like go into a long discussion about who those bad actors are and whether or not one of them is Facebook. Um, but <laughs> I, <laughs> sure. I, I think that, um, you know, I, again, to, to bring it back to things that relate to a song of ice and fire for me, it, it just always hits home to me that we can never have faith in you can never have faith in one single leader in order to have a better future for a country, for a group of people, people have to be motivated and organized. Um, and so, you know, if I were to put a hopeful spin on things, um, my hopeful answer to that question is that I still believe that there is hope for, you know, this country this world to kind of turn things around if people uh look at their situation and organize in their own interests perfectly said that's yeah i think that's 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 definitely where you gotta put your hope in more than more than one leader i think and even the most well-intentioned leaders i think run up against that reality uh pretty clearly speaking of uh well-intentioned leaders running up against hard realities uh, one character to talk about in this regard um, is is, is Jon Snow, and you've you've written really well about Jon before in a couple of essays. And how how would you how would you describe Jon Snow as like as a as a reformer? Is he is he too? Does he push too hard? Does he not push far enough? Is it more complicated than even those categories? Um, I think. I think it's I think it's more complicated than those categories. I think that. John has the kind of dual problem of hmm. wanting to do the right thing and knowing kind of in an abstract sense what the right thing is, uh, but then not knowing how to implement that thing, right? Okay. Not being well enough kind of connected with the people around him and with his own sense of himself um sure to do that thing right um and this is you know to use a, a kind of poker analogy right um if you are if you are the kind of person who is if you're the kind of person who will be afraid if you go, if you, you know, pot commit yourself to like half of your chips, right? Uh, you, you've got to be careful about the situations in which you do that, right? And John is the kind of person who, I think as we sort of learn in his story in A Dance with Dragons, he, he gets himself too far into situations that that compromise him and then they force him to make other bad decisions right and if you're a, a poker player you'd think that's bad um and my you know the the example that i have of this from the books i think is 
John's sort of gambit with Melisandre, and this is something that's entirely missing from the show, is that, you know, John ends up sending, um, you know, Mance Raider to go rescue who he thinks is Arya because um, Melisandre suggests he does it. And that's where we get this wonderful quotation, you know, that about uh, prophecy being, well, not, uh, about, um, you know, magic being a double-edged sword, right? Sorcery being a double-edged sword. And it's, I think that is, to me, that kind of double-edged nature of how you wield power, that is, in essence, John's command. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it, that he... Because he seems, George has, has really nicely trapped him between a bunch of different competing impulses at every point because it would be so much less complicated without the wrinkle of, of Stannis and Melisandre there. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a murky area. Do you think he owes, as Lord Commander, what do you think he owes the Iron Throne as an institution? Do you think that's purely a relationship of political expediency? Or how much how much really is, is legally rooted there for, for John to... You know, to, to to kiss up to the Lannisters. Do you, do you think he has a, an obligation to do that because they're the ones who would you know, be sending him men and resources at the end of the day? I I think to the extent he has an obligation to the Iron Throne, it's it's one of expedience. Um, okay. I think it's sort of my argument would be that you could view the Night's Watch relation, the Night's Watch neutrality principle, as kind of a a treaty between the Night's Watch and the Iron Throne. And to the extent that the Lannisters are like not making nice um, and not sort of fulfilling their obligation to send troops to the wall, then they're, they're not upholding their end of the bargain. But there's no real legal enforcement mechanism for any of that uh, other than John making the political decision to do exactly what he does, which is support Stannis. Right. Um, so that's that the enforcement mechanism is that he, you know, he can decide to support this other claimant to the Iron Throne, which he's obviously not supposed to do, right? Again, that's a violation of the neutrality principle. But we know that Cersei's already violated the neutrality principle because she sent people up there to assassinate John, right? Um, not not that John knows that when any of this happens. Um Right. So, That's the thing. Yeah, because he's dealing with such transparently bad actors with the Lannisters. But does that inherently excuse, not even excuse, but does that, that doesn't get rid of the consequences for John doing shady things in his own right. And I think that's what we end up seeing in Dance, that he just can't uh, escape the, the consequences for it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it from a, if I were Jon Snow's lawyer, this is what I would argue perspective. Sure, sure. Now, if I were Let's talking about Let's say Bowen Marsh it, puts him, puts him on trial instead of stabbing him. Yeah. Yeah, right. That, that's what I would argue. But, um, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my essay is that, you know, John just can't, he, when, when you are kind of live with his internal thoughts, just the thought of sending a letter to Tywin Lannister to try to make nice is so repulsive to him. Uh, you know, he thinks about it as a paper shield. And you can read the kind of 
condescension in his brain. Because John is torn between the fact that, of course, he, you know, does not like the Lannisters. And it's not for political reasons as the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. It's for his family allegiance to the Starks. Um, and so to me, that's the real meat of John's conflict with the Lannisters. It's not the Night's Watch neutrality oath. It's the fact that John is supposed to be neutral because he is not supposed to have allegiance to the Starks. And yet, allegiance to the Starks motivates almost every decision he makes in which the interests of the Starks are implicated. Yeah, exactly. That's and it's he's and he's still working with their turf and their people, and that's what's so I think poignant for me in dance. It's like, yeah, like he can't give advice to Stannis without calling on that part of himself because it's that part of himself who knows who the the clansmen are and why they might be interested, and so he can't he can't possibly get around that. And you know, uh, do you think that? How much do you think the presence of the Bolton specifically are a mitigating factor in terms of John making decisions like sending Mance off or joining with Stannis? Is there a case to be made that the Boltons are basically ungovernable or, un, you know, un, like, like what John says to Elsie Mormon in book two, like there are just some men you just can't work with. They just like taint you if you become part of it. Is like, should, should John not want to make a treaty with, with, with guys like Ramsey? What do you think about that? So I'll, I'll I'll give you two answers. Uh, so the the first answer is that I I think that just how I think George wants it, George Mar- George R. Martin wants to view it kind of from a narrative sure. perspective is that I I mean John's just in an untenable situation. The Boltons are the worst imaginable, <laughs> right? And yep. they. They, they had a role in murdering his entire family. You can't trust them. I mean, that's the important, that's that's the sig- narrative significance right. of breaking guest right. It's not just that they're bad actors. They're the kind of bad actors that break every norm imaginable. Yes, there's no political equivalent to this in the real world. Um, <laughs> but, but like... That that's that's who they are. They're, they're comic book villain bad. Uh-huh. Um, and so... I think that there's a set and the, the term that I use in my essay is that this is George R. R. Martin's version of the Kobayashi Maru, right? It's meant to be an unwinnable situation. Um, and so that's, that's sort of answer number one is like, yeah, you're right. There, there's just, there's no really good choice for him to make. And so he just has to go on and make a choice. And so right. the most, you know, the, the, all we can do is judge him on what's the best wrong decision. You know, did he make the best <laughs> wrong decision possible? Right. Um, I mean that, but the second answer to me is that the, again, we, we have, John is torn between a desire to be objective as Lord commander and his own emotional attachment to the Starks. And this is the significance of Eamon's kill the boy and let the man be born speech because i think john takes Eamon's advice to kill the boy and let the man be born as 
he needs to distance himself from all of his friends. He needs to, you know, cut all his emotional ties from everyone around him. But tragically, right, John can't do that, right? Because if he has no emotional relationships with any of the people in his life now, what's going to govern his decisions? His, his family that he left behind, right? Because that's the most significant tie that he's had in life. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I, John probably makes the right decision kind of from a strategic standpoint, from an objective standpoint, in supporting Stannis to the extent that he does at the beginning of Dance. Like, I think mm-hmm. giving... Stannis the advice about um about the northern clans it's not a it's it's kind of borderline defensible right but i could i could make an argument that it's it's justified in the circumstances in part because the the night's watch does owe a debt to stannis for defending the wall right and that's what Stannis is counting on when he shows up there. It's not just that he's doing the right thing. It's also that in doing the right thing, he gains the allegiance of the Night's Watch. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that there's there's a sense in which that is a good decision. Um, and one that is defensible. But John does a whole bunch of other things. Um that are the straw that bakes the camel's back. And and obviously sending Mance to get Arya is is one of those one of those things um his 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 he makes other decisions with respect to the wildlings and i think we can kind of put those in a separate bucket right in, in terms of that's a we have to use a different set of analysis <laughs> sure sure um but but my opinion is the the straw that breaks the camel's back for john's command of the night's watch is obviously his decision to march south against the boltons it's not his decision to aid stannis it's his decision when he gets the pink letter in the last chapter to decide to march against the boltons and that is quintessentially just it's just not defensible as consistent with his duty as lord commander maybe as a human being but not as a lord commander i think that is the sting in the tail that he's riding off to do battle against the worst human being imaginable, which is the thing as the hero you're supposed to do. That's supposed to be your reason for being. But in context, it's, it's, it's seen as quite foolish. And yeah, I, th- I think, I think you're right that he, it's, he makes a lot of defensible, understandable decisions with regards to Stannis because he owes Stannis because Stannis at least theoretically wants to fight the White Walkers. Uh, whereas the Boltons, you know, don't apparently know about them and probably wouldn't care either way. And because Stannis is somewhat more humane to the wild to the wildlings than the Boltons would be, and, but and because he seems to be covering his tracks fairly well, in that there's no real way for the Boltons to find out necessarily that he's doing this specifically, unless they capture and torture Stannis, uh, which you know always always a possibility. But yeah, in terms of yeah, actively going south, and he's it just it just strikes me that like especially since he's also at that point sending tormund with a bunch of watchmen to Hardhome. so it's like who is left at castle black at that point pretty much nobody that's the big thing for me right there is that he when he makes the decision to ride south it means that 
he is not going to ride to Hardhome, which is what he told the watch he was going to do, and which he tells the watch their duty, everyone's duty, is to go to Hardhome. And he is abandoning that duty that he chose in favor of his family when he goes to support the Boltons. And now when he goes to, sorry, when he goes to march against the Boltons. And you could argue... Oh, well, well, I think you make a good argument. Oh, well, he has to march against the Boltons because the Boltons aren't going to, you know, support against the others, right? They're not going to fight the war against the others. You've got to get rid of the Boltons in order to effectively wage war against the others. But that is decidedly not what John is thinking when he reads the pink letter. I mean, he's thinking about Rob. He's thinking about Arya. He's thinking about his memories of the Starks. That is the reason that he decides to march south. I I don't think that there's really any debate to be had about it. That's his motivation. And he does that in dereliction of the duty that he explicitly argues to the watch the chapter before they have to go to Hardhome. And that's the that's the tragedy. Yeah, you're right. He's pulling out the rug from under his own his own lecture to them. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that that's exactly right. And yeah, it's because of his own his own human reasons. And that gets at what you were talking about with the law, this frustrating struggle between humanity and objectivity, that you don't want to be just ruled by your own, you know, personal needs and desires, because you have the responsibility of other people and the whole society that you're living with. But if you completely detach yourself, then you end up like the zombies, then you end up like the broken men, then you end up with no tether. And then it's, it's unlikely you're going to make good decisions at that point either, once you've set your heart on fire. And also in regards to Ramsey, it strikes me as a conundrum that I think we're dealing with in our own versions today is that is the problem of how to unite with people who blatantly don't want to unite with you. Like, you know, I theoretically, yes, of course, we should all be getting together against the White Walkers. Theoretically, the Boltons are people too, and that's better than the zombies. So, you know, whatever we need to do to help, you know, you know, join with them against the army of the dead. But just politically that, you know, John is kind of ground down by the fact that that's just not going to happen, I think, over the course of A Dance with Dragons. That the Boltons don't know about the others and probably wouldn't care even if, if, if they knew it was coming in the same way that the Cersei doesn't particularly care in the show. And, yeah, I think that, that, that balance, as you say, I think there's just, it's, it's, a, it's a no-win scenario, as you were saying. It's the Kobayashi Maru for John because... There really is no, I think, perfect way to thread that needle. And it's more just that the the particular mistake he makes is so revealing. But if you put any other person into his shoes, they would probably make their own version of that mistake. Yeah, there's there's so many good, you know, the reason that I call this essay the last temptation of Lord Commander Snow Mm -hmm. is because I, you know, I compare it to the the last temptation of Christ um, because the, the idea in the the movie that i'm talking about right is that the the thing that ultimately you know the the thing that you know jesus is ultimately forced to confront is the the fantasy of having a family the fantasy of his potential life versus saving the world and and to me this is the same thing that emotional dilemma that that john is put through in in a different way obviously it's not like a one-to-one comparison but you know the thing that is john's temptation 
is his love for his family. Um, and I also think that the other, the thing that pulls on my heartstrings about it is you can also feel John has this kind of moral exhaustion throughout his tenure of Lord Commander. He's so sick of everyone's bullshit. He's sick of being mm-hmm. put in these situations where no matter what he does, he's fucked. He's made the wrong choice. <laughs> and so when it comes down to what to do with a pink letter, right? Instead of sort of living up to the duty he sold to the watch, I'm going to lead it. That's my job to lead this march to hard home. Um, you know, he decides to march on, on Ramsey. The thing that gets me is it almost feels like John saying, I'm exhausted. I'm giving up. I'm doing the thing my heart wants. Um, and that's, it's relatable. It's decidedly unevil, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. And so I think it's so important. I think it's just so important to recognize people can do the wrong thing, right? From a completely unevil human motivation. And that is one of the reasons that I find John's arc and dance to be so great, but also so misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, is people want to be rooting for John. So they want to say John did the right thing. You know, he did the right thing. He was supposed to go reclaim Winterfell. That's what he was supposed to do. No, it's it's not the right thing, right? Maybe it's not decidedly the wrong thing. <laughs> um, but the point is that it represents the failure of John's command. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison to, to Last Temptation in the sense of a denial of duty and destiny in the hopes of, of getting your family back and living that life. There's a line from Last Temptation I really love when he says, God loves me. I know God loves me. I want him to stop. And I think you mm-hmm. get that sense with John too, as you're saying that exhaustion setting in of, I don't want to be the guy on the front lines of saving the world anymore. And not even because it's horrifying because the White Walkers don't actually show up and dance. It's just every day brings these indignities and compromises and he just says at one point, this is my command for the rest of my days. And he just can't. Mm-hmm. He just itches. And like, yeah, it builds. It builds to that point. And it's it's a part in direct response to the pink letter. But in part, I think it is just the cumulative response to everything he's been feeling the whole book. And yeah, a part of him is just like, oh, good, an excuse. A, a clear-cut reason that I can write off. And as you say, I think it is... I don't know how deliberate that was on George's part, but it does feel like a direct challenge to an audience that is waiting to have the direct power fantasy through Jon Snow. And I think you say, see that in with Daenerys in A Dance with Dragons too, that, yeah, her dragon shows up and takes her away, but it's kind of horrible, makes everything worse in Marine, and then she's just stuck. And I think that's that's really interesting. And I, I yeah, I, lo- uh, I loved reading your essay on it, and uh, I can't wait to see how that, that plays out in the future. Oh, I, and I just think this is so important for how... I Part of the reason I wrote this essay is because of... Um, I was working through my feelings about the end of Game of Thrones and um, why I thought, you know, why I thought the context of what what will happen at the end of the books will be, you know, dramatically different, even if the events are the same. Yep. Um, and the, what you just said about kind of denying readers a power fantasy is that is precisely the kind of takeaway that I have from the end of Game of Thrones, right? We're, we're denied that 
Eck having a power fantasy through either Daenerys or Jon at the end sure. of Game of Thrones. Um, and that is, to me, at the heart of what... It's not just what George R. R. Martin's doing with Jon, who I think is, you know, meant to be, um, you know, a, a deconstruction of the kind of traditional kind of hero. Um, it's what he's doing throughout the books. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a questioning of whether or not there really can be this this kind of fantasy hero and whether or not it's actually a good thing. And I think that it's so interesting to me that in, you know, 2019, when the Game of Thrones came out, we were in the midst of a, the political climate that we are in, that even despite the failings of Game of Thrones season eight, that message still failed to hit the majority of viewers. Um, because I, I, I truly think that's one of the most, you know, important things to take from a Game of Thrones. Um, is, is this, that the, you know, the deconstruction of the fantasy, the deconstruction of the fantasy hero, the deconstruction of the Aragorn, you know, the idea that, you know, if the king is a good man, uh, the land would prosper. You know, the Aragorn's tax policies question. Um, and I, it's, it's fascinating to me, um, the way people react to having that hero taken away from them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think I said this before, but I'm, I'm as rereading and thinking more about the show, the more I think that the main implications for Danny's story, especially, but I think a lot of the story isn't for how we deal with real world violence. It's for artistic presentations of violence. And that I think is what George actually has more to say about than about real world systems of oppression, which I think he has some to say about, but I don't think that's really the overall thrust. I think it's more what it is, what is it we're trying to get out of these stories? What is it we take away and why is that what we take away? And I think a lot of it has to do with perspective. And yeah, I think there were tons of tonal reasons, tons of decisions not to like Game of Thrones season eight, but I do think that that core message was there and was rejected. And I think that does make me think about what what we're, while people are going to react to a more kind of forceful uh, intent intent driven mess- version of that message in the books because I, I do think that's really important not to take fantasy away from you but to challenge your ide- easy identification and I think some people are, are more up for that than others it, it comes back to moral imagination which is what we talked about sure. at the very beginning of this right and mm-hmm. part of moral imagination is taking responsibility for yourself and the people around you and not waiting to i not waiting for a narrative that lets you identify with a magic fantasy hero fixing everything coming coming from far away and i think exactly exactly like you're saying that that has implications for the kinds of media that we consume right and the kinds of media that that Martin is critiquing in in a Game of Thrones because um sorry in a Song of Ice and Fire because he wants to he wants to question leaders because that helps build the uh, he wants to question leaders because that 
helps build the reader's moral imagination. It yes. helps us think about whether or not we should be identifying with that leader or whether or not we should find that power within ourselves. I think that's that's a great way of putting it. I think it uh it yep, that road ultimately leads back to to how we think about ourselves as viewers and how we think about ourselves as consumers of media. And um yeah, that's terrific. So um I think that just about wraps us up. Thank you so much, Mary. We really appreciate I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, to fill Jeff's large clown shoes that he wears and, and honks <laughs> repeatedly in people's faces. But really, thank you so much. Uh, and um, so uh, tell everyone where they can find your stuff, where they can find Learned Hands, where they can find your essays. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. You can find me uh, on Twitter at, at Mary. That's M-E-R-R-Y, Mary. Um, you can find uh, also our podcast. Uh, uh, you can find Learned Hands on uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, and um, iHeartRadio. I don't have the list I normally read of all the podcast platforms in front of me. But yeah, all anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find I'll, I'll drop links in the episode description. But yeah, you can, you, can, you can just search Learned Hands podcast and you'll find them. They pop up immediately. Yeah, uh, and you can find uh, my John essay and some essays I've written on Bravos on upfromunderwinterfell.wordpress.com. Um, and that's, that's my stuff. Uh, thank you again so much for having me on. Uh, my absolute pleasure. So uh, thanks again, folks, for listening. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be having another couple guests on. And then Jeff is going to be back on the regular rotation starting, it should be February the 8th. That's what we have him scheduled for right now. Obviously, that may change as time goes on, but that's what we got planned. So I'll reveal to you our next couple guest hosts as we get closer to them. And thanks, uh, thanks again so much for listening.